This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues, and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome again to this podcast, which was pre-recorded uh, first to be aired Wednesday evening, October the 7th at 7 p.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Well, uh, sadly, once again, the top mental health-related story since we last got together is another mass shooting committed by someone with apparent mental health issues. Um, and... You may very well be tired of me talking about issues like this, and I can understand that because it's happening way too often, and I'm sure tired of having to talk about it, but this is a a podcast about current mental health issues, so I can't very well ignore it, and the issue needs to be talked about uh, until something is done about it, to stop this random, senseless killing. And uh, from each time to the next, that it happens, except for dealing with the perpetrator if they survive the attack and don't take their own life, nothing is being done. Let's face it. Let's be real about it. Not a thing has changed. Not a step has been taken to prevent tragedies like this. Well, I'm going to focus on an article that uh, was from the New York Times. It was reprinted in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which says that experts say when, when something like this happens, okay, you have a mass killer who fits a certain profile, but that profile is too broad for pro-action. In other words, it's too broad a typical profile Uh, for these mass killers to actually try to do something about it in advance. Uh, So let's hear what the experts have to say about why we can't stop incidents like the nine people who died at the small college in Oregon and so many others before it, Uh, why we can't stop incidents like that before they happen. And then after I go over the article, I'll give you what I think is my own pragmatic way to uh, 
stop this loss of life. <clears throat> they have become one of the most notorious and alarming stripes of evil. People who, when you think back, seemed off, didn't dress right, kept to themselves, were nursing a bitterness that smoldered inside of them. And then they picked up guns and went out and killed as many as they could. In the aftermath, the same questions arise. Why didn't everyone know? Why weren't they stopped? Now those questions are being asked about Christopher Harper Mercer, who for reasons yet to be deciphered, slaughtered nine people at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon, uh, <clears throat> last Thursday. They've been asked about the man who killed nine people in a church in Charleston, South Carolina, the man who killed six people in Isla Vista, California last year, the man who killed a dozen people at the Washington Navy Yard in 2013, and the article doesn't mention them, but there are clearly others, the young man who killed children and adults in an elementary school in Connecticut, uh, the young man who killed people at Virginia Tech, and so on and so forth. We could list all, uh, many more. What seems telling about the killers, however, is not how much they have in common, but how much they look and seem like so many others who don't inflict harm. Weaving a profile of the public mass murderer, drawing on threads that have been identified, can reveal the broad contours of a certain type of individual. But those contours are indistinct enough to apply to countless others. The recluse next door with poor hygiene who never speaks, who will never pick up a gun and go out and murder. The big problem is that the kind of pattern that describes them describes tens of thousands of Americans, even people who write awful things on Facebook or the Internet, said James Allen Fox, a criminologist at Northeastern University who has studied and written about mass murderers. We can't round up all the people who scare us. While the mass public killings that have drawn intense public attention seem to be reoccurring in daunting frequency, their quantity is actually relatively small, at least compared with other kinds of mass murderers. Grant Dua, a criminologist with the Minnesota Department of Corrections, has studied more than 1,300 mass murders that took place between 1900 and 2013. Of them, he classifies 160 as mass public shootings, ones in which at least four people were shot and killed in a concentrated period, excluding those in family settings or involving other crimes. Those who study these types of mass murderers have found that they are almost always male, all but two of the 160 cases isolated by Dua, Many are single, separated, or divorced. The majority are white, with the exception of student shooters at high schools or lower schools, 
They are usually older than the typical murder, often in their 30s or 40s. They vary in ideology. They generally have bought their guns legally. Many had evidence of mental illness, particularly those who carried out random mass killings. But others did not, and most people with mental illness are not violent. They're depressed, Fox said. They're not out of touch with reality. They don't hear voices. They don't think the people they're shooting are gophers. What he's talking about is the profile of the vast majority of such murderers. Obviously, there are exceptions who are floridly psychotic, like James Holmes, the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting, just to name one. Uh, going on to describe Dr. Fox's profile. They don't fit in. Their most comfortable companion is themselves. Mass killers tend to be people in social isolation with a lack of support systems to help them through hard times and give them a reality check. Harper Mercer showed signs of such isolation and despair. Like others, he appeared smitten by past mass killers. They see them as heroes, Fox said, someone who wins one for the little guy. Elliot O. Roger, a 22-year-old California college student, had not had any friends since grade school. What little interactions he had seemed to be online while playing the video game World of Warcraft. Many mass killers gravitate to violent video games, as do many young men in general, though this could be more a symptom of their isolation than a cause of their violence. Not long before he acted, he posted a video to YouTube. It showed him sitting behind the steering wheel of his BMW, ranting about his isolation, the women who had shown no interest in him, and his disappointment at being a virgin. It all has to come to this, Roger said in the video. Tomorrow is the day of retribution, the day I will have my retribution against humanity, against all of you. On May 23, 2014, he stabbed three men to death in his apartment, then drove off and shot three others from his car in the crowded streets of Isla Vista. After two shootouts with sheriff's deputies, he killed himself. Well, so I guess the point of the article and the bottom line is that Fine, you can come up with a rather detailed profile of the typical mass shooter, but that doesn't help because there are too many tens of thousands of people who fit that profile, and you can't put all of them under surveillance, and you certainly can't arrest them. There isn't the manpower or the resources to do so. So what do we do? Well, I look at this problem pragmatically. Uh, if you look at the issue of the weapons, let's face it, I don't care what side of the gun control issue you're on, whether you're pro-gun rights or pro-gun control, this country is not going to curtail gun rights. Okay, The uh, people who are favoring gun control are distinctly in the minority. They're outvoted by the majority. Politicians uh, certainly are 
mostly pro-gun. The NRA lobby is very strong. So there's little to no chance that we're going to have stricter gun control laws. Um, and we just said that you can't just go locking people up because they fit this profile. So what other solution is there? Better security. Uh, whether you're staunchly pro-gun or staunchly gun control, you're not really safe from random violence like this if you go out in a public place. So the only solution for schools, be they elementary, middle, high school, or college, is to have security that could screen out and stop an intruder like this. And the same go for shopping malls, movie theaters, restaurants, anywhere where violence like this could be taking place because you have a large group of people in a concentrated space. That seems to attract these mass killers. Impractical, expensive, yes. But right now, I don't see another solution. All right, we're going to take a commercial break here. When we come back, other mental health-related news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast... Childhood stress impacts adult health. Persistent distress, distress in childhood 
associated with higher risk of heart disease and diabetes. A 45-year study, that's a really long period of time, of nearly 7,000 people born in a single week in Great Britain in 1958 found that psychological distress in childhood, even when conditions improved in adulthood, was associated with higher risk for heart disease and diabetes later in life. Wow, before we even get into the meat of what the article found, I got to give these researchers credit. I mean, to decide back in 1958 that you're going to take everyone born that week and you're going to study them for 45 years and you're going to look at, look at what happens with childhood stress going forward. I mean, wow, that's really uh, forward thinking. And, and those, those scientists, those researchers were way ahead of their time. Um, I wonder if some of them didn't live long enough to see the fruition of the research and see it get published. Well, in any case, the study, which was published in a recent issue of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, looked at information related to stress and mental health collected about participants in the 1958 British Birth Cohort Study. They looked at these folks at ages 7, 11, 16, 23, 33, and 42. Researchers also collected data for nine biological indicators at age 45 using information from blood samples and blood pressure measures to create a score indicating risk for heart disease and diabetes known as the cardiometabolic risk score for each. The study found that people with persistent distress throughout their lives had the highest cardiometabolic risk score relative to participants reported low levels of distress throughout childhood and adulthood. Using the same comparison group, participants with high levels of distress occurring primarily in childhood and those with high levels of distress occurring primarily in adulthood also exhibited higher cardiometabolic risk. The estimated risk for cardiometabolic disease for people with persistent distress through to middle adulthood was higher than risk commonly observed for people who are overweight in childhood. After adjusting for a range of factors that might affect these associations, including medication use, socioeconomic status, and health behaviors, the researchers found the risk for people who experienced high distress levels primarily in adulthood, was not different compared with those with low levels of distress over their life course. But participants who experienced high distress, primarily in childhood, and those with persistent distress, continued to have significantly higher risk scores even after considering those other factors. The study supports growing evidence that psychological distress contributes to excess risk of cardiovascular and metabolic disease and that effects may be initiated relatively early in life. While effects of distress in early childhood 
on higher cardiometabolic risk in adulthood appeared to be somewhat mitigated if distress levels were lower by adulthood, they were not eradicated. This highlights the potentially lasting impact of childhood distress on adult physical health. It is also increasingly apparent that adversity in a child's social environment increases the likelihood of developing high levels of distress. Thus, early prevention and intervention strategies focus not only on the child, but also on his or her social circumstances may be an effective way to reduce the long-lasting harmful effects of distress. The study indicates it may not be helpful for clinicians to focus on managing known cardiovascular disease risk factors like smoking, obesity, elevated cholesterol, and lack of exercise without addressing underlying risk factors that affect patients. When considering patients in this broader social context, telling them to lose weight, stop smoking, eat a better diet without addressing the underlying stress or distress that may be fueling unhealthy behaviors and lab values may be counterproductive. Indeed, by advising or directing patients to change their behaviors, we undermine their trust in us and may exacerbate their distress, especially if they feel stuck or unable to make the recommended changes. A more compassionate approach to patient communication may be more helpful, certainly a more thorough look, uh, look at the person as a whole, not just their lab values and their vital signs and their smoking status, uh, but what sorts of stress and distress they've had to deal with in childhood as well as in adulthood in terms of mitigating their cardiovascular and metabolic disease risks. <clears throat> Again, fascinating study design. Give a lot of credit to the people who accumulated that data. Next up on Psychiatry Today, I noticed that I accumulated several articles having to do with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I thought I would go over that with you, looking at it from different angles. And again, I want to remind everybody that while you think of veterans and people who've been to combat when you think of post-traumatic stress disorder, or otherwise known more simply as PTSD, uh, certainly civilians suffer PTSD tremendously car accidents, fires, floods, earthquakes, rapes, robberies, witnessing murders, what have you, um, all these things can trigger PTSD in anyone. So even though the research may focus on combat veterans, it certainly has a lot of importance for um, <clears throat> PTSD diagnosis and treatment in the civilian population as well. Uh, but nonetheless, the first article I'm going to talk about is kind of a, uh, an update for uh, the state of PTSD treatment for veterans. So this is our Veterans 
mental health update on uh, this week's podcast. Cures for PTSD often remain elusive for war veterans. Our nation's veterans continue to suffer emotional and psychological effects of war, some for decades. And while there has been greater attention directed recently toward PTSD and more veterans are seeking help, current psychotherapy treatments are less than optimal, according to a new narrative review that was published back on August the 4th in the Journal of the American Medical Association. In a review of medical literature over a 35-year period, researchers found that non-medical approaches to treat PTSD were effective in some patients but not in others, suggesting a need for broader, more personalized approaches to care. The researchers looked at randomized clinical trials of psychotherapy for military-related PTSD to examine which psychotherapies improve symptoms. This included, in particular, a review of trials of two commonly used evidence-based treatment models, cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy. Findings showed that both prolonged exposure therapy and cognitive processing therapy are not as broadly effective as was once hoped. As many as two-thirds of veterans receiving either one of these types of therapies keep their PTSD diagnosis after treatment, even if their symptoms improve to some degree. There is definitely a lot of room for improvement. The emotional effects of war are gaining attention. And there are veterans from all wars who are struggling, not just those who most recently served in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is a pressing need for innovation in treatments for PTSD and traumatic brain injury to protect a new generation of veterans. The study indicates there is still much to learn about how to optimize PTSD treatments of veterans. It is very clear there is no one-size-fits-all approach. Ideally, we have to move toward clinical options that match patients to treatments based on their preferences and their comfort with talking about their trauma, which varies from person to person considerably. One thing we do know is that veterans are unlikely to benefit unless they complete a full course of treatment. Finding ways to develop treatments that align with patient needs and preferences is important because in that way it will increase the likelihood that they will complete a full course of treatment. The United States Veterans Administration and the United States Department of Defense have been funding such approaches to treatment. There are encouraging findings that while therapies that focus on processing trauma, uh, that would include the uh, cognitive processing therapy and the prolonged exposure therapy that we mentioned before, uh, that they are generally effective for veterans who complete their course of treatment. There are alternatives 
for veterans who are emotionally unprepared to confront their war zone experiences. And when veterans are doing either prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapies, that's what they have to do to uh, directly confront their war zone experiences. And that just isn't possible for some veterans to tolerate. Next up, after this next break, a potential innovation in cognitive uh, uh, therapy or psychotherapy for PTSD. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right before the break, we were talking about some research that found that current psychotherapies that are used in the treatment of PTSD in war veterans are lacking insofar as they're not a good approach for many veterans and If uh, veterans aren't able to complete a course of treatment, their PTSD is not going to be resolved. Uh, So there's definitely a need for alternative therapies besides the cognitive processing and prolonged exposure. And this next article I'm going to review with you is about just one of those different approaches. Mindfulness-based stress reduction therapy 
decreases PTSD symptom severity among veterans. In a randomized trial that included veterans with PTSD, those who received mindfulness-based stress reduction therapy showed greater improvement in self-reported PTSD symptom severity, although the average improvement appears to have been modest. This, according to another study in the same August 4th issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association. And uh, <clears throat> the article mentions that that particular issue uh, was devoted to the theme of violence and human rights. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, affects 23% of veterans returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. Left untreated, PTSD is associated with high rates of other disorders, disability, and poor quality of life. Evidence suggests that mindfulness-based stress reduction, an intervention that teaches individuals to attend to the present moment in a non-judgmental, accepting manner, can result in reduced symptoms of depression and anxiety. By encouraging acceptance of thoughts, feelings, and experiences without avoidance, mindfulness-based interventions target experiential avoidance, a key factor in the development and maintenance of PTSD, and may be an acceptable type of intervention for veterans who have poor adherence to existing treatments for PTSD, like the ones we were talking about in the previous article, the cognitive processing and the prolonged exposure. Researchers randomly assigned 116 veterans with PTSD to receive nine sessions of mindfulness-based stress reduction therapy or present-centered group therapy, an active control condition consisting of nine weekly group sessions focused on current life problems. Outcomes were assessed before, during, and after treatment and a two-month follow-up. Participants in the mindfulness-based stress reduction group demonstrated greater improvement in self-reported PTSD symptom severity during treatment and again at two-month follow-up. Although participants in the mindfulness-based stress reduction group were more likely to show clinically significant improvement in self-reported PTSD symptom severity, 49% versus 28% with present-centered group therapy, at two-month follow-up, there was no difference in rates of loss of PTSD diagnosis at post-treatment, 42% versus 44%, or at two-month follow-up, 53% versus 47%. Findings from this study provide support for the effectiveness of mindfulness-based stress reduction for the treatment of PTSD among veterans. However, the magnitude of the average improvement suggests a modest effect. The rate of clinically significant PTSD symptom reduction of 49% versus 
for those randomized to mindfulness-based stress reduction is similar to that reported for empirically supported treatment approaches to PTSD and consistent with the rate of clinically significant improvement in PTSD symptoms of 48% found in a before and after study of mindfulness-based stress reduction among veterans. Although the results are promising, the short duration of follow-up calls into question whether the effects of mindfulness-based stress reduction persist over time, so therefore additional studies of this and other mindfulness-based interventions for PTSD are warranted. However, I will say this. When articles about mindfulness-based stress reduction therapy start showing up in prestigious scholarly medical journals that are peer-reviewed, like the Journal of the American Medical Association, ladies and gentlemen, in that, in my opinion, that means that mindfulness-based psychotherapy treatments have arrived. This is now in the realm of hard science, not pseudoscience, not some sort of fringe new age type of treatment. Um, this is a real treatment. It's being studied and compared with other treatments and generating real positive data. Yes, it may be modest, but um, <clears throat> I've seen other articles that comment on how veterans are more accepting of therapies like this than they are of prolonged exposure in which the veteran is expected to directly confront the situation that they experienced in combat that generated their PTSD symptoms. Uh, And we just talked about in the previous article that when it comes to any treatment, when the veterans complete their course of treatment, that's when they get better. So if the type of treatment is more acceptable they're more likely to complete their treatment and improve. Uh, So if mindfulness-based stress reduction therapy has arrived for the treatment of veterans with PTSD and is published in one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, then I would have to say that's a strong message uh, that uh, it definitely is now in the realm of hard science. Now, we're going to move from looking at a potential new treatment for PTSD using a type of psychotherapy, and we're going to look at some research into a possible new drug intervention for PTSD, and this depends significantly on knowing the pathways in the brain that are involved in developing PTSD. Um, So the possible new weapon against PTSD could be from blocking a newly identified memory pathway, and that could prevent the disorder in the first place. About 8 million Americans suffer from nightmares and flashbacks to a traumatic event, And uh, PTSD, while it's particularly common among soldiers who have been in combat, 
As I said before, it can also be triggered by a physical attack or a natural disaster. Studies have shown that trauma victims are more likely to develop PTSD if they have previously experienced chronic stress. And a new study from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology may explain why. The researchers found that animals who underwent chronic stress prior to a traumatic experience engaged a distinctive brain pathway that encodes traumatic memories more strongly than in unstressed animals. Blocking this type of memory formation may offer a new way to prevent PTSD. The study appeared in the journal Biological Psychiatry. The idea is not to make people amnesic, but to reduce the impact of the trauma in the brain by making the traumatic memory more like a normal, unintrusive memory. Researchers focused on the amygdala, an almond-sized brain structure whose functions include encoding fearful memories. I like to call the amygdala the fear center of the brain. They found that in animals that developed PTSD symptoms following chronic stress and a traumatic event, serotonin promotes the process of memory consolidation. When the researchers blocked amygdala cells' interactions with serotonin after trauma, the stressed animals did not develop PTSD symptoms. Well, I guess they've developed an animal model of PTSD. Blocking serotonin in unstressed animals after trauma had no effect. That was surprising to researchers. It seems like the stress is enabling a serotonin memory consolidation process that is not present in unstressed animals. Memory consolidation is the process by which short-term memories are converted into long-term memories and stored in the brain. Some memories are consolidated more strongly than others. For example, so-called flashbulb memories formed in response to a highly emotional experience are usually much more vivid and easier to recall than typical memories. Researchers further discovered that chronic stress causes cells in the amygdala to have many more of a certain subtype of serotonin receptors, which bind to that chemical. And then when a traumatic experience occurs, this heightened sensitivity to serotonin causes the memory to be encoded more strongly, which contributes to the strong flashbacks that often occur in patients with PTSD. It's strengthening the consolidation process so the memory that's generated from a traumatic or fearful event is stronger than it would be if you didn't have this consolidation conducted through serotonin. Well, we'll take another break here. When we come back, we'll talk about a potential drug intervention for PTSD exploiting this new knowledge. 
You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And right now we're talking about a way to prevent PTSD from happening in the first place when someone is exposed to trauma and this potential new drug intervention to prevent PTSD in trauma victims depends heavily on research into uh, animals when uh, scientists can see what pathways in the brain and in a structure called the amygdala, which work through the brain hormone serotonin, are involved in consolidating fear memories. Now, this memory consolidation process can take as little as hours or as long as days to complete, but once a memory is consolidated, it is very difficult to erase. However, the findings suggest that it may be possible to either prevent traumatic memories from forming so strongly in the first place, or to weaken them after consolidation using drugs that interfere with serotonin. The consolidation process gives a window in which scientists could possibly intervene and prevent the development of PTSD. If you give a drug or intervention that can block fear memory consolidation, that's a great way to think about treating PTSD. Such an intervention won't cause people to forget the experience of the trauma, but they might not have the intrusive memory that is ultimately going to cause them to have nightmares or be afraid of things that are similar to the traumatic experience. The Food and Drug Administration has already approved a drug called agomelatine that blocks this type of serotonin receptor and is used as an antidepressant. Such a drug might also be useful to treat patients who already suffer from PTSD. These patients 
Traumatic memories are already consolidated, but some research has shown that when memories are recalled, there is a window of time during which they can be altered and reconsolidated. It may be possible to weaken these memories by using serotonin-blocking drugs to interfere with the reconsolidation process. The findings also suggest that the antidepressant Prozac and other selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are commonly given to PTSD patients, likely do not help and may actually worsen their symptoms. Prozac enhances the effects of serotonin by prolonging its exposure to brain cells. While this often helps those suffering from depression, there's no biological evidence to support the use of SSRIs for PTSD, according to the study author. The consolidation of traumatic memories requires this serotonergic cascade, and we want to block it, not enhance it, she says. The study suggests we should rethink the use of SSRIs in PTSD and also be very careful about how they are used, particularly when somebody is recently traumatized and their memories are still being consolidated, or when a patient is undergoing cognitive behavioral therapy, where they're recalling the memory of the trauma, and the memory is going through the process of reconsolidation. Well, while it is fascinating that you can exploit the knowledge of the fear pathways in the brain and potentially come up with a uh, medication-type intervention to either prevent consolidation of traumatic memories or weaken them. Uh, I have to differ with the study authors saying that there's no biological evidence to support the use of SSRIs for PTSD. Uh, Paxil and Zoloft, which are also both SSRIs, um, are FDA approved for the treatment of PTSD. And um, that would not have happened without rigorous study and uh, firm, solid evidence that the Food and Drug Administration would find uh, passes muster. Uh, So while this latest research definitely casts doubt on the mechanism of SSRIs being something that would enhance or um, increase the consolidation of traumatic memories as opposed to decrease it, uh, there certainly is evidence that they do help at least some patients. However, clearly a different approach is needed. And uh, I'll also go beyond you know, the scope of the article as far as uh, inadequate drug treatment for PTSD Um, Veterans Administration hospitals and clinics studies show that very often the powerful antipsychotic mood stabilizers wind up being prescribed uh, for combat veterans with PTSD uh, just because they have a tendency uh, to get this constant psychic torture that these PTSD victims go through to stop. but there is no official approval for those drugs to be used, and they have extremely severe 
side effect profiles, uh, things like permanent movement disorders, weight gain, diabetes, uh, increased blood lipids, just to name a few. Um, <clears throat> so interesting that uh, this research now is targeted a specific pathway, even a specific serotonin receptor that when blocked would alleviate the development of PTSD symptoms proactively. Uh, I wonder if any study of the one drug they mentioned that has this mechanism, agomelatine, will be studied as a potential treatment for PTSD. <clears throat> Moving on to other subjects here on psychiatry today. Saw this article that had to do about obsessing about the past. And unfortunately, this is a problem that a lot of people with anxiety and depression have. They ruminate about the past. They have trouble letting things go. So I thought, well, uh, why don't I review this article and maybe there'll be some tips in there that might help some people. The article's title is Coulda, Shoulda, Woulda. Why You Can't Stop Obsessing About the Past. A disappointment can quickly turn into an obsession when you can't mentally resolve a past issue. A loss in the big game, a missed opportunity, a loss of a job, a breakup, a friend's betrayal, a death in the family. Sometimes we just can't stop turning the past over and over in our minds despite the fact that we cannot change it. Why do we obsess? A disappointment can quickly turn into an obsession if a person cannot mentally resolve the past issue. In most cases, you ignore, suppress, or redirect your thoughts. You are able to move on after a brief period of time when you have resolved the matter to the best of your ability whether literally or by way of acceptance. But thoughts turn obsessive when they are recurrent and persistent and produce significant anxiety as a result of an inability to cease thinking about the particular event, thought, or feeling. From a clinical perspective, this process of obsessing over the past is actually defined by a slightly different process-oriented term. In cognitive behavioral therapy, the idea of someone going over and over the past is a process called rumination. Typically, this is seen in people with a history of depression. The underlying problem is an unresolved issue. When something is not resolved in a way that feels right in our psyche, we often find ourselves stuck in this area, whether it's from a month ago, a year ago, or even from childhood, it might be harder to let go of something rooted in our sense of identity. Like the loss of a relationship, think about a teenage girl with her first boyfriend. When they break up, if she's built her life around this person, it's part of her identity. If she doesn't have him, she's lost. Why can't we let go? Well, the more you think about a specific moment, person, or event in the past, the harder it is to let go. Think of it like a forest in which you're carving pathways in the directions of your thoughts. 
the more you obsess about it, wider the pathway becomes. It becomes the path well-traveled, and your thoughts move in that direction. When there is a recurrent negative theme in your history, like a pattern in your relationships that causes them to sour, that path becomes wider and becomes your brain's default. We look back and obsess as a mechanism to gain understanding into what we coulda, shoulda, woulda done differently had we been given a chance. To a certain extent, it's important to realize that rumination is a natural human reaction. The process falls along a spectrum. The brain is doing the best it can to rationalize and accept what's happened. In most situations, and for healthy individuals, it's okay to obsess for a little while before moving on. It might even be a good thing, as your brain is determining better ways of dealing with past events that may pop up again in the future. The obsessing might even be a good thing, as your brain is determining better ways of dealing with past events that may pop up again in the future. You're able to address the issue, determine a corrective path for the future, and keep a mental store available so when it arises again, you can address it differently. How to break out of an obsessive thought pattern? Usually, you'll be better able to accept the past when you apply the lessons you gleaned from your rumination phase to learn from prior events and write a script for ourselves that allows for differences to be made in the event the situation arises again. You might even want to try cognitive behavioral therapy. It can be critical for learning techniques like thought restructuring and thought redirecting. You direct your thoughts away from the negative to safer positive thoughts. And then mindfulness meditation can also break these thought patterns. Remember that many opportunities in life present us with ways of uh, going through the same experience but having it come out differently in resolving the unresolved issues. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you. And I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week till we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.